Welcome to the Future Belongs to Creators. I'm your host, Nathan Berry. I'm the CEO at ConvertKit, and I'm joined by my co-host, Barrett Brooks. He's the COO here at ConvertKit, and we're on a mission to help creators earn a living. This show is about turning anxious energy into creative output during times of uncertainty. Hey, my people, we're live, we're live right now. Clearly, as you can tell from my co-host, Mr. Barrett Brooks, it's been a week. But welcome to episode 88 of The Future Belongs to Creators. This is a special election episode brought to you by... Live election update. Yeah, exactly. Brought to you by the sloth currently counting votes in the state of Nevada. Let me take you over here to the board. Oh, man. Could you imagine being like a news anchor in this election week that just won't end where they say the same thing repeatedly for 96 hours now? It's just like, it's insane. I don't think that I could do it. I think I would actually go crazy. Luckily, you don't have to. You get to run a software company. That's why we should make certain life choices, kids. Exactly. We'll dive into a bunch of stuff in a second. But first, if you have questions, drop them in the chat. We've got a couple pre-submitted ones. Before we go to that, Barrett, how are you doing today? Red, yellow, green. Green. I wore a green shirt for a green day. Yeah. So we've been like, I'm a Christian. Normally kids get baptized relatively early in life. Our kid's almost a year old. We've been like waiting for, I don't know what, for the pandemic to end or something. And finally, we just realized, all right, we just need to get the kid baptized. So anyways, we went and did that this morning. That was how I started my day. We are officially in rainy season here in Portland. And so I'm kind of just like settling into the winter. Been hosting this series of monthly conversations with you and a group of our friends about meaningful topics. Last night, we had a conversation about living in community and what that means to us. That just like really, I really enjoyed. It kind of fired me up a little bit about just kind of life and how we live intentionally and all those kinds of things. So I'm good. How are you doing, Nathan Barry? I'm good. I'd say green, pumped about where this election is headed. I had some good conversations this week. We're making a lot of progress on hiring and recruiting. So excited for that. We've been sleeping terribly. Yeah, same. Yeah. For whatever reason, Josiah, he's 10 months old now, has decided like sleep is just not a thing that we should do consistently. Hillary was up with him from 4.45 to 6.15, 6.30. And then it was my turn and she went back to bed, you know? Oh. And so then at nine, I like went back. Josiah joined for a couple of uh, work calls this morning. Great. He joined for our conversation last night about what it looks like to live in community. He's been hanging out. Actually, my office floor is just like papers and random things strewn everywhere. He really likes the remote for the air conditioner. Something about remotes, man. I don't know what it is. (laughs) Anyway, lots going on, but overall, I'm green. Since it's kind of top of mind, let's talk election for a little bit. All right. The first thing that I just want to say, I think we're both pretty independently minded people. So Mm -hmm. I am unregistered. I do not register with the party for the record. Oh, interesting. See, I've been a registered Republican for probably a long time. Can I say that? Yeah. Is that going to get me canceled? Well, I don't know. Whenever I read an article or something online, I want to know the persuasion of the person I'm reading. And so I just think it's better if we're going to talk, let's be upfront about it, you know? Yes. My first two elections, I was a registered Republican. I grew up in Georgia. And as I formed my own political opinions over time, I switched to being a registered independent, which is not to say a registered libertarian. It's just the only other option they give you, you know? Yeah, that makes sense. I think that the last election four years ago, I didn't vote for president, voted for lots of other offices. I just didn't feel comfortable voting for either candidate. And actually, I think I'm probably Evelyn Libertarian way more. I was like campaigning for Ron Paul in 2008, you know, like all of that. Got my photo of photo with Ron Paul signed, of course. This time around, you know, as 
I was probably an anti-Trump vote rather than a pro-Biden vote. Mm -hmm. Not that it matters in Idaho. Idaho went Trump regardless. But the biggest thing that stood out to me, I always try to find so many people are frustrated or, you know, leaving social media. You cancel your Facebook account or are in the process of doing that, right? I am. Two days later, I got my downloaded files from Facebook. Yeah. You know, something that I try to do is still curate my Facebook feed a little bit. So that has like a, it doesn't end up with a bunch of people who just agree with me. Mm. And so I try to keep... Like I have some Republican friends or Trump supporter friends that I really respect. And so it's been interesting to watch those conversations. And, and one thing that I just want to say about this whole thing is that this election would have been cut and dry done if we had just passed rules in certain states that say you can count ahead of time or even day of, even day of. It would have been normal. We would have been done. We would have been done election day. Yeah. And so I just want to say, as everyone is thinking about like, is the election has it been stolen? Is this a come from behind victory or any of that? It's just like, there's so many states that count ballots in advance. And then we have this subset of states where they tried to change that rule. So you can count the ballot when it comes in ahead of time in some way. And if we had just made that change, then this would have been cut and dry, easy, done. It wouldn't have felt like a wildly close election. That's not what we did. Hopefully it will be changed for four years from now. I do think that this sort of change is possible. I just want to point out that in 2000, Florida, like everyone was looking at Florida and like, you know, get everything organized. Don't do that again. This year, Florida, done. On the money. They're just like, here's our votes, done. You know, and so I just want to say, like, look into these other states, like you have four years to get this right before <laughs> we're in this position again. Love it. Well, let's see. Should we get into some Q&A? Let's do it. We had a couple questions, which I closed out of the tab. Oh, there it is. I found it. Okay. Okay. I'm going to go with this one from Darian first. What have you learned about transferring internet money into real world assets? How would you advise other creators to do the same? Ooh, internet money into real world assets. Okay. So really we're talking about wealth building is kind of what you're getting into. So this is assuming you get past that stage of like making it to where your business can be full-time. And then you're to the point where you're earning a healthy enough living, where you're taking care of your basic needs. And now you're starting to accumulate some extra funds on the side, which a lot of creators get to this point. That's one of the awesome things about owning your own business and being a creator is that you can get to this point where you have this financial freedom that may not have previously seemed accessible to you. We have a lot of friends who have gone from either growing up very low income or without any kind of generational wealth that have created it by being a creator, which is pretty awesome. So the question is, how do we think about handling basically diversifying your wealth building strategy so that it's not all dependent on your creative business. This is how I interpret this one. Yeah. And the first thing that I think about is we have this idea of what career should look like, right? And income should steadily increase throughout your career. You know, you're getting raises, you jump from job to job, all of this, you become more experienced, go get a degree, whatever it is. And so it's like, great, I should expect to make 5% more this year than last year and so on. And that is not at all how it works as a creator, and so because of that, I think you have to approach these things differently where you could make, I don't know, say $50,000 one year with your full-time job, $30,000 as a creator the next year, and then like $200,000 as a creator the year after that. Like you can have these wild swings. Just for a little bit of my salary history, the last design job that I had, I made $60,000 a year. Then I got a raise to $63,000 a year. Then I did like independent stuff where I made about the same amount of money, but was freelance. And then it took off and I made like $200,000 a year. Mm -hmm. And then I started ConvertKit and it went down to basically nothing. So you get these wild swings. And so what's really important is to not just say, I'm going to continue to increase my lifestyle along with what I'm making. And I'm going to count on the fact that if I made $100,000 as a creator this last year, then I'll make $110,000 next year and so on. 
And so what that means is as you make profits, you have to save more aggressively than you would in a more predictable job. In addition to saving, you have to invest that money. So like the first thing that I would do of taking this internet money, I love the term internet money because it kind of makes it feel fake. And sometimes it's so sporadic that it does feel fake. And it's like, wait, we get paid to mess around on a podcast? Really? Is this even real money? And so it, you know, it just plays to that. But the first thing you have to do is take that internet money and put it in savings and then from savings into investments. And it doesn't have to be fancy. Like we're not talking about angel investing in startups or the other things. We're talking about buying index funds of the total market index funds through Vanguard or Wealthfront or something like that. And so it's less about what exactly you do and more about how can you move a higher percentage of your income that's going into those investments. Yeah. Here's the general like wealth building ladder that I would think about separate from your income ladder that you've written about. Yep. The first thing is six months of full expenses in the bank. Average your past 18 months of spending. If you're not keeping a budget, keep a budget for your personal life and look at your average spending over the past 18 months per month and then multiply it by at least six and get that much cash in the bank. If I were going independent again, I might even aim for like 12 months of cash in the bank just so that I know if the business does something weird or if I'm hitting reset or pivoting or whatever, I've got room. And I like to save full expenses because that means then I even have more room if I cut down and we really get down to like, what do we need? So six months in the bank is my first thing. Second thing is max out your basic retirement account. Right now, I think the limit on 401k is something like $19,500 a year-ish in the U.S., As an entrepreneur, though, you would want to set up something. I'm not a financial advisor. We're not financial advisors. Go talk to a financial advisor, okay? Don't take this as financial advice. This is what I do. As a creator, set up a SEP or a simple account, which is basically an independent retirement account that you can contribute to similar to the way an employee would max that thing out. And that's where you want to be like maybe just a little bit to the risky side of conservative in terms of your strategy there. You want to essentially invest such that you get growth, but you're not risking it all with like high potential, high risk assets. And that's where the index funds come in. So that's the second thing I would do, max out my retirement account. I would do that if you have a spouse or partner, I would do that in their account too. Make sure they're maxing out their account. Yep. And only then would I start thinking about other asset classes. And so I just want to be clear about that, that like that typically takes people quite a while to get to that point. And once you're there, you're kind of playing with like house money at that point where you don't want to lose it, obviously, because it's hard earned, Mm -hmm. but you can be a little bit more risky and diverse with the ways that you're going about investing it for wealth building in the future. And that's where I start thinking about things like individual stock investing that can be very educational and interesting, sometimes can be a really bad strategy for building wealth if you're not very good at it. I think about real estate and hard assets like that. Yep. And then we have some friends who have made a really great attempt at turning internet money into more internet money by buying internet businesses and installing like an operator or a CEO of that business and then taking the profits. Mm-hmm. And that's really interesting to me. There's like one theory of all this stuff that says, don't go into a bunch of domains you don't know with your money, diversify within the domain you know best. And I think that's a really compelling argument. Because keeping your money in the internet world may expose it to similar risk to your income. But if you're invested in different businesses that all use the same methods of making money, I actually think that can be a more effective way to build wealth long term because it applies all of your knowledge and expertise to that rather than like going into real estate, for example, which has a whole other body of knowledge you have to build. Yeah. And you might end up where whatever recession comes along or or whatever thing causes an investment to go down, even if you're within the same asset class, it might hit them differently. Like for example, if we had invested money in Teachable 
and a software serving the music industry. With COVID, in both cases, both are SaaS. You know, and so it's the same asset class. They both have trials coming in. They care about trial to pay conversion rates, all of these same things. But with COVID, Teachable went up a lot, whereas something serving the music industry or specifically touring would go down considerably. And so you could have diversification with still one set of expertise, assuming that that's what you're good at. The other thing that I would say is most of the wealth that you're going to build is going to come from your primary business, you know, and most of those gains. So then your job is just to harvest those gains and set them aside in a way that will continue to grow and compound. What you don't want to do is just purely let everything ride because, well, the business is going up for a long time. It can and does come down. One example that I think the guys at Basecamp highlighted this is the Flip camera, which was this little like original HD camera. It's like this big. I remember people had them in maybe 2008, 2009. They were the most popular. And I think they went up to like a $600 million market cap. They were really popular. They, to my knowledge, didn't pivot into something more successful. So they went up and had this big ride and they went down the other side. And all of that wealth is gone unless they took profits along the way. And if they took those, invested them, paid off their house, did these other things, then they're actually in pretty good shape. So I would just say, you know, have that profit first mentality. Make sure that you're finding that balance between investing in the business and, you know, setting aside things in index funds. And then just the more money that you have, there's this tendency to make things more complicated. Good way to lose money. It's just not necessary. In the same way that $1,000 would look good in an investment account, $10,000 would look good, $100,000, a million, $10 million. Even if you had a crazy amount of money, like $10 million in a Vanguard account, like it's just sitting there, like yep. that's just normal. So don't feel like as the income goes up, and I had this, like the first time that I got to over, say, $10,000 in a checking account, I was like, whoa, what I should be like, smart people should be doing something with this, right? And the truth is like, no, it's just, it's the same thing, but a bigger number. So just keep reinvesting. I think that's actually the harder thing is not to do anything with it. I think a lot of people lose a lot of money by trying to do too much. Yeah. They're almost looking for entertainment. And if you want entertainment, keep working, keep creating, you know, don't, don't go mess around with your money. Yep. Yeah. One other thing that I'll add is on Monday, we're doing an episode. I'm going to be joined by two other ConvertKit team members, Tyler and Alyssa. And we're going to talk about our Airbnb businesses that we all run on the side. And if you ever consider real estate or Airbnb as a side hustle, Monday's episode will be entirely about that. Yep. Love it. Just some great knowledge between the two of them. I will highlight that. Okay. Continuing on the trend of money, Emily asks, what money habits or practices do you wish you had implemented earlier? I have one that comes to mind right away. I guess it was through college. Money did not go well for me. And so I took like a head in the sand approach to it where like, you know, that the statement that comes to the bank is going to say that you don't have money and that you probably just overdrafted your account. And so instead of like proactively dealing with it, I would be like, I don't want bad news. And it's not even new bad news because I roughly already knew what it said. So I would like not open the envelope. And so the first thing that I wish I'd implemented earlier is like not avoiding bad news and just taking full responsibility and saying like, yeah, whether I pretend reality is different or not, it doesn't matter. It's still the same. And just actually like confronted it head on. And I would have saved myself through college, like hundreds of dollars at a time that was really meaningful in overdraft bills. And I would have just spend much more on top of things. Yeah. I don't have a lot I wish I had done differently, but I'll share a couple of anecdotes. One is I've run businesses since I was 15 or 16. And I made substantial money in high school for a high schooler running my lawn business. I wish I had invested that 
or a portion of that, like even just the 10% that people typically recommend, Mm. that could have grown into something meaningful at this point on the order of tens of thousands of dollars, not like hundreds of thousands of dollars. But I do wish I had done that. So I wish earlier in my life, I had been encouraged to practice what I see as kind of the pinnacle of our goals financially is to invest 10%, save 10% and give 10% off the top of everything we make and then do everything else. And at some point you can get to a point where you're earning, where you can do more than that even, but practicing that from when it was small amounts of money, I think I would have had better habits earlier. And that's what we'll teach our son and future children to do. Mm -hmm. The second thing I will say is we've had like a very, this kind of experience with money over the first kind of little over a decade of my working life. And the reason is that when it went way like this, negative even, was we were taking risks, but those risks have paid off in major ways. The overall trajectory has been very high, but if you looked at the individual data points and like debt we've had at different times and all of that, it would look like we're dumb. But I could tell you at every point, like, okay, that was when I started a business. And then that was when I took a role that was paying me less than I was capable of making, but it allowed me to get on this path in other startups. That was when we moved to New York City and took a risk there. And that was when we moved back from New York City. And all of those things have turned out to be worth it, but it was very stressful along the way. Mm -hmm. And so I don't know that I would change anything about that because I wouldn't be here having this conversation if I hadn't done it. And I don't even know that I would say like, just know that it's all going to work out if you're in that seat because you don't know, you know? Yeah. Maybe the advice I would give myself is this is the cost of living your life differently and building a career differently. And just recognize that you're going to carry some stress from that. Like there's going to be financial stress in your life because of the risks and the leaps that you're taking. Right. That's part of the calculation you need to make. So that would be the only thing is like really embracing that and making sure that my wife and I were on the same page about that and those risks. And we were for the most part, but I think we were a little naive about the degree to which that would affect us over time, even though it's all worked out up to now anyways. Yeah, that makes sense. Our next question is from Kurt. He asked for ConvertKit, the stated team size was under 50 people. And I'm adding to this. And yet you keep expanding. What's the thinking on that? And when should creators push past initial thinking on their own team size? Yeah. But this has been quite a journey over time that you and I have gone through and navigated together. The first thing that I would say is often when you have a principle early on, it can be naive, not in that it's the wrong principle, in that it lacks nuance. And so it's actually that thing that you should write it down. You should say, this is what I believe and this is why. But then as you go and live it out, you'll find that it's actually not significant in the way that you thought it was. Or that there's several layers beneath it. Like, okay, but really, what are you trying to do? So if we take the 50-person team size, and then maybe we can come up with something that applies more directly to creators. There's nothing special in particular about 50 people, right? Like the 51st person doesn't suddenly ruin everything you had, and 49 people isn't suddenly magical in some way. Instead, what we found is it's a shorthand for an experience. It's a shorthand for truly knowing everyone on the team and being able to like be connected with them and be friends and work together and really enjoy that and know everyone. It's a shorthand for being able to provide financial independence for every person on the team of like, okay, if we achieve tens of millions, hundreds of millions in revenue and keep the team really small, then we could pay salaries and compensation. It's just ridiculous, you know, that we're creating financial independence for every person. It also plays in this idea of a style of building the company. We believe in leverage, scaling things with code and media and all of these things that creators have access to that give you incredible leverage beyond just hiring additional people. And so it wasn't that we believed something to be true 
And then we decided like, oh, that doesn't matter to us. Instead, what happened, and I would say it was not an easy process. There was a lot of conflict and discussion and everything else involved. But as we went through it, we realized, okay, we have this stated 50-person rule. What's underneath it? And then we broke it down to those things I talked about and said like, oh, those can actually coexist without the firm rule. It gained nuance and it gained color. And so with that, then we were able to say like, wait, we can actually scale the team more and achieve more of our goals and still get financial independence for the team. The team can still know each other. It means we can't have goals like let's double headcount next year, which a lot of companies have. Mm -hmm. You can't do that and know people really well. But if you're consistently adding a person a month, a few people a quarter, then like you can get to know them. They can get to know the whole team. It was realizing under that what we truly wanted, adding that nuance and updating and reflecting it. So that's why it's so important to write these things down and then over time realize like how your perspective has developed. An example as a creator might be, you might say, like my goal is to earn 100,000 a year in revenue. And that's the thing you're always pushing towards. But there's nothing meaningful about 100,000 a year in revenue. It's about what does that allow you to do? And so if you were to break that down and say like, okay, that would give me freedom to live where I wanted to. That would give me freedom to not be worried about my mortgage payment. You know, any of these things you break down, you realize, okay, it might not actually be the 100,000. It's really that I want these four things. And the 100,000 is just a shorthand for referring to that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What else would you add? You've lived this whole experience right alongside me. Yeah. I mean, look, like we have very, sometimes goals that are at odds with each other in terms of what we're trying to accomplish here. On purpose. Yeah, on purpose. Because they build in constraint and tension that allows us to be intentional about what we're trying to get done. So like an example of knowing everyone on the team, when you're clear about that actually being the goal, you can do things like we just started an internal podcast where we're sharing each other's life stories so that every new person that joins the team doesn't have to have 58 one-on-ones. Right. They can actually listen to a podcast over the course of six months or something, and then they'll deeply know every person on the team and every person on the team won't have had to share their story 60 times. As an example of a system that gets towards the goal while also allowing us to add people, we're trying to do a couple of things. One is we want to build an iconic brand that celebrates creators and the way that they influence culture, design, music, media, writing, literature, art, like these things shape culture. This is part of the narrative we talk about internally. And by empowering creators to share that art more widely, we help them shape culture. That's like a really exciting thing to be working on. So first of all, you have to have enough resources applied to accomplish that, you know, to like bring that to the forefront, bring that to life through our brand and through our tools that we offer. And then the second thing is we do want to provide wealth building opportunity for everyone on the team. We talk about it in terms of people doing the best work of their lives and becoming the best version of themselves because they work here. Yeah. Okay. Well, that has limitations built in because it means you have to be really intentional about the kind of workplace you create and the way we reward people and the way that we encourage them to show up. And then lastly is we want to grow revenue. You know, you have to grow revenue to get these other things to continue investing in it. And I think the short answer to, well, the short summary of a long answer to a short question is the balance of those things does not dictate that we need to have 50 people or less. It dictates that we need to be intentional about how we grow the team. And so that's kind of the compromise that we've landed at is we can be intentional and build the team relatively slowly compared to pure revenue companies, but still continue to expand on the vision that we're trying to achieve and the kind of culture that we're trying to create. 
And I feel like we've reached a really happy medium. And sometimes, you know, people don't want to be a part of that. And that's okay. But as long as we're clear up front about what it is that we're doing here, it allows everyone to opt in or opt out. And then they can go find another culture where like they're going to hire 900 people next year and whatever else. And that's okay too. Like there's nothing wrong with that. This is just our way of doing it. Yeah, that's good. Let's go ahead and take one more question. We've got one from Teddy and then we'll wrap up since we both have some other calls that we need to jump on. Teddy asks, how should a designer approach getting customers at scale? when they have successful productized services in place and are experimenting with selling products. And he says, for example, Rafal, who's friend of the show. You know, honestly, the first thing is, like Teddy included designer in there, partially because, you know, he is a designer. I would just remove that. I think the answer is the same for designers as it is for anyone else. And it comes back to a few of these consistent things of, one, I would have a specific goal or a destination in mind. You know, of I'm building a company to do this. I'm trying to help creators or my customers achieve this outcome. And then I would document the process and the steps along the way. So I don't know that the answer is particularly surprising in any way, but I would I would lean into things like content marketing, working in public, sharing my story, sharing case studies and wins from customers, you know, and telling their stories. As you do that, whether you're selling services, products, or a product as service, I think that's going to work really well. Yeah. The first thing would be. Do you need to do this in order to achieve your goals? Yes, that's good. First question I always ask someone who's a service provider, because there's this idea that the ultimate outcome of any service business is to stop being a service business. That is not a foregone conclusion. That does not have to be true. If you want it to be true, that's something different, right? I think we have a lot of friends who have spent a lot of time trying to figure out how to stop getting paid to offer services when they could just be the very best person in the world and get paid more than anyone else offering services. Right. And so the thing to recognize, Seth Godin talks about this as transitioning from being a freelancer to being an entrepreneur. And you're an entrepreneur in either case in the classic sense of the term, right? So I don't want to, I'm not degrading being a freelancer whatsoever. That's not the point of the comment. But the distinguishment he makes is a freelancer makes money when they work. An entrepreneur makes money regardless of whether they're working. And that's what products do for you, right? Is that you're able to sell them even when you're not specifically working on selling them, even though there are a lot of things you have to do around that to make sure they continue to sell. So my first question would be, do you need to productize your services? Because everything that it takes to make that successful and scalable takes away from what could be a very straight line to earning more and more money as a designer or whatever service you're offering. And I just want to say out loud that it is a perfectly valid and fulfilling path to earn more and more money having the very best service offering of anyone that does what you do. That is an awesome way to build a career and a business. And you can spend out a lot of money working that way. You know, we talk about Andrew Wilkinson and his business investing in other businesses. Well, that started with an agency doing services and spending cash out to buy other businesses. Yep. And the reason is that it can be really cash positive, even though it doesn't earn you like 900x multiples by offering services. So anyways, the thing that I would work on building is a brand. Because there's this point where as you grow a services business, you know, first you're known just for being you, for being Teddy the designer. And then the more that turns into a brand, then the more that you could have a team of designers, you could be known for Teddy's taste and quality for design, but he doesn't have to be the individual doing it. Mm -hmm. So I think about a gentleman named Eddie, I can't pronounce his last name, but who runs an agency called Unfold. And Eddie is a very famous designer. I think he's probably the most famous designer on Dribbble. But we've worked at this agency plenty of times and maybe he's done some of the designs, but he's built a reputation and a brand for the whole agency. And so he's transferred this expertise and this reputation that he's had now to a group of people. And so 
that's sort of this freelancer to entrepreneur shift where now he doesn't have to be the one necessarily doing the design work that he can jump in and do whatever part of it. So I would just ask, like, what are the activities that will help lead to a credible brand over time? Yeah. So my last piece would be, okay, let's assume you have this answer for a reason. You know, you want to productize your services, know where you're building your audience and just do it in one place. I'm so sad when I see people get started productizing something and then they're like, I'm on YouTube and I have a blog and I have a podcast and I'm on Instagram and follow me on TikTok for my dance videos. And I'm just like, stop, stop. You know, when Pat Flynn started being everywhere after he had been really good at being one place, one place. So be in one place and be really good at that because you only need to be in one place to build an audience. That is the truth. Maybe too, maybe you need like a publishing place and somewhere where you share what you're publishing or you're sharing your art. So like a blog and Twitter or YouTube and Instagram or something like that. Maybe you need to. But even in that case, you're talking about 80% on one platform and then 20% on another for distribution. Yes, exactly. And just build the audience there. Only do that and then figure out how to sell just that audience, the thing that you make. And if you can figure out that equation, can I grow an audience in one place? And can I sell my product to that one audience? Then you can be everywhere later if you figure out that that's what you want to keep doing. But getting to that single point of failure of will these people in my audience buy this thing that I made will tell you everything you need to know about whether it's scalable. And so I would just say, get there as fast as you can. Yeah. Okay, this is going to turn into a closing thought because we don't have resources or creators today. But I would just say that when you think about being in that one place, think about what it does to what you have to learn. You know, if you have these articles saved and you're like, oh, I got to learn about the TikTok algorithm. I got to learn about how to grow a YouTube channel and what's the YouTube algorithm looking for? What are email best practices? What are all these things? It is an endless amount to learn. But if you just said, as a designer, I'm going to put out the best design tutorials on YouTube. And now you can just set all of that away, file away everything else and say, okay, I just have to learn YouTube and video production and like that level of clarity. And so I'm going to make a flywheel around that and I'm going to work it for an entire year. And then I'm going to see what comes from there. That's it for us today. Thanks for hanging out. We'll see you on Monday. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Future Belongs to Creators. If you didn't pick it up from the show, we make a tool called ConvertKit where we're on a mission to help creators earn a living by building software that helps you build an audience of loyal fans. If you want to give ConvertKit a try, you can go to landingpage.new to launch your next creative project. You'll be able to build a landing page and send emails for up to 500 subscribers totally for free. So again, that's landingpage.new. You can get started with your free ConvertKit account today.